Thanks for being with us this morning. Well, on Wednesday, there was a protest outside the office of the federal fisheries minister and a lot of sport fishers saying the Chinook closures announced by the DFO are completely optical. They will do nothing to actually protect and to actually address the issue with vulnerable stocks, but they will do a lot to hurt the industry. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Jason Tonelli, president of the Vancouver Sport Fishing Guides Association. Jason, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me this morning. Uh, so, so break it down, if you can, for uh, somebody who looks at this on the surface and might think, well, if there are endangered stocks or if there are endangered uh, salmon runs, it sounds like it might be a good thing to stop the taking of those salmon uh, out of the waters. But break it down what that actually means for you and for your group. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, that's a simple message that's been broadcast, which is inaccurate, but when you sit down and look at the DFO data, and we have some stuff called coded wire tag data and DNA data, it will show you that less than 1% of the Chinook that we encountered in the southern state of Georgia last year were actually these uh, Fraser River stocks of concern. These uh, The Fraser River Chinook stocks of concern in the interior have been going down for a while, and uh, we've been closed for those fish for over 20 years, so this closure is a lot of politics. Uh, so is it in your mind, is it kind of the low-hanging fruit? It's the easiest thing for the DFO to do and to make it look uh, like they're uh, taking action? Yeah, I think, it, I think it really boils down to a simple message that's been broadcast uh, mostly by ENGOs for the last year and a half that uh, southern resident killer whales are in trouble and uh, there's a lack of Chinook and they're starving. And so, you know, I think if you're a politician... Uh, an easy answer there is to say, hey, I'm going to shut down retention on uh, these Chinook in general, and uh, I'm going to save some Chinook and save some killer whales at the same time. So uh, you can see how that politically would be uh, potentially a good decision, but it's 100% not backed by science. Uh, part of the um, the reasoning for the closures as well, or that was a recommendation that was made by the Fraser River, the Aboriginal Fisheries Secretariat, and uh, this is a group that that goes between or, or talks with both the DFO and and the Fraser River First Nations. Uh, mm-hmm. How much of an impact do you think that has in that? To, even in that recommendation, it's after conservation, it's and it's after the requirements of First Nations that 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 you guys would be allowed to fish. Yeah, that, that had a lot to do with it. That's, uh, that's starting to come out now. I don't think that that was widely reported in the beginning. Uh, the recreational community uh, certainly doesn't dispute uh, the First Nations' uh, primary right to harvest Chinook for ceremonial and food um, uh, fisheries. Uh, that's not a problem with us. I guess the main thing that we're saying is, hey, you know, you just shut down the south coast of British Columbia and less than 1% of the fish that we catch are those fish. So, you know, you're shutting us down. We're not impacting those fish at all. Um, There are some court cases, though, that will show that in order for the Department of Fisheries and Oceans to potentially have meaningful um, closures for those First Nations fisheries, uh, they would need to shut down the recreational sector first, regardless of the fact that we're not even... Um, having any issues with the same fish. So it's a bit of a frustrating situation. So I think that did have a lot to do with the minister's decision for sure. And what does it mean for your industry? 
Well, it's been devastating. I mean, uh, I was out on the water these past couple days. Uh, the, the the fishing is excellent right now in our, our local waters out here off Vancouver in the Southern Strait. And there's nobody out there. Um, I would say that I think that the sports fishing effort's been reduced by about 85%. Uh, we have a big retail store in Vancouver as well as a large fishing charter company and uh, the saltwater tackle sales are easily down in the 70 to 80 percent as well as the charters. So those are those are people that just aren't coming here from all over the world, different provinces and a lot of people from the States. They're they're not coming up to fish. They're not booking their hotel rooms. They're not hiring caterers. It's uh, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of impact. And and you talked about the science and what's actually happening in there because I think that that's that's one of the issues too. And you mentioned uh, the southern resident killer whales. Is people uh, I think would be quick to say, well, yes, conservation is very important. But do you think there yeah. is that that misinformation or that that kind of disconnect yeah. between the two? You, you nailed it. There's a there's a huge disconnect. It's very easy for someone to broadcast a simple message. Uh, unfortunately, science takes a little bit more time, like we have today. And uh, the DFO does have DNA data that shows the recreational fleet in this sector is literally catching less than 1% of these Fraser River stocks of concern. Basically what people are doing is classifying Chinook as a whole, but they're very, they're very diverse. So what they're not, what the public isn't hearing about is that the Cowichan River, for example, had uh, a a record return of Chinook last year, usually got 6,000, it got 20,000. Uh, the Pontledge River had an excellent return of Chinook. So there's a lot of extremely healthy Chinook stocks in the Strait of Georgia, which have nothing to do with this closure, but the government is using archaic uh, blanket closures. And a lot of people don't know that about 60 to 50% of the fish we're catching right now are actually uh, from United States hatcheries too, which again, have nothing to do with these Fraser River stocks of concern. Hence, uh, the less than 1% uh, exploitation rate that we have on those fish. Is it is it self-policing then as far as if you were out, if, if you were still in a scenario before the, the announcement of the closures and you were catching a Chinook, say you caught one that was part or was uh, part of the endangered species or the endangered run. Is it self-policing in that guides know what what fish they're allowed to catch and retain and what ones they're not? And, and does it then become a catch and release or, or can people feel confident in that? Yeah, well, it, it's. It would be hard to tell just by looking at the fish what kind of Chinook it is, but I mean, you would you would have to go out and hook a vast number of fish to over the over your whole summer to to retain a uh, hundred fish with clients, and of those hundred fish, zero point six three percent of them would be upper interior Fraser River Chinook stocks of concern. So you can see why the recreational fleet is up in arms over a blanket closure when we're sitting in meetings with DFO and the DFO of science is saying, Hey, you know what, you guys, uh, you don't really have a significant impact on those fish. In fact, it's less than 1%. So we're, we're kind of broadcasting this message to the public saying, look, we, we want Chinook stocks, interior Fraser Chinook stocks to be healthy too. But um, how can you bring back a run of Chinook when this user group is encountering them less than 1% of the time? Uh, what we want to see is, uh, is real measures, so some habitat improvement, some enhancement, work with hatcheries, and uh, about 50% of the out-migrating Chinook smolts are actually eaten by seals, so we're looking for some specific uh, predator control in some areas as well.
the fisheries minister wasn't at his office when the protest took place on Wednesday. Have you had any response from either the minister's office or from the DFO? Do you have any reason to be optimistic that things might change or that these restrictions might be eased? We did see some response. We uh, did see a written response by the fisheries minister and uh, also there was uh, a response uh, by Trudeau where he was talking about it in the House of Commons. Uh, but it's the same old message. They're broadcasting a simple message saying Chinook stocks are in trouble and we had to make some tough decisions uh, and that's just wrong. I mean, the, the Chinook stocks in our local waters are doing really well. There is a very specific run of Chinook in the upper Fraser which needs protection and we want to protect those fish. Uh, as I've noted many times already today, we're, we're not encountering those fish. Uh, so we're just tired of the broad uh, brush management techniques, which are, are, you know, that's that's from the 70s and the 80s. We have DNA data, which tells you where these fish are. And um, I think they're just keeping it simple to keep it political and try and get ENGO votes. Uh, so what do you do as a sport fishing guide and the other guides with your industry with this season now looking uh, dismal, really, if these changes, if these if this ban stays in place? Yeah, we're we're hanging on right now, literally. Uh, the best, some of the best Chinook fishing of the year is April, May, and June uh, for these um, all these U.S. hatchery fish and all these other stocks that are doing really well. Uh, it looks like we'll get open in some areas July 15th and August 1st, and um, hopefully we can scrape together a season in those uh, 30 to 45 days into the beginning of September. Uh, but this is this is just the first year. I mean, the, the minister is basically told most of the world that we're not open to, to Chinook fishing. Um, if you think it's bad this year, you just wait until next year when people just are going to make other plans this winter. Some people are already committed, so they're coming anyway. But uh, this, this needs to change. The minister needs to follow the science, open us back up, and uh, do some real stuff. Do some habitat work and some enhancement work and work on some predators. So we're hopeful that they'll get the message and we'll be in uh, a better um, area for 2020. All right. We will talk to you again about this, I'm sure. Jason, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity and have a great weekend. Well, as you may have heard in the news, Saskatchewan's Court of Appeal ruled in a split decision. A federally imposed carbon tax is constitutional. The Saskatchewan government had asked the court for its opinion on the levy. That's the levy that came into effect April 1st in provinces without a carbon price of their own. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe says the legal fight, though, is not over, and his government plans to appeal the decision to the Supreme Court. The fact of the matter is, is this. Um, This is game one. We were unsuccessful in game one. We have game two in Ontario. We have game three in another province, game four in another province, likely game five ending in Alberta. And the fact of the matter is, is the end of this playoffs will ultimately be decided in game seven, which will be the Supreme Court of Canada. In the court decision in Saskatchewan, it was ruled that establishing minimum national standards for a price on greenhouse gas emissions does in fact fall under federal jurisdiction. So you just heard the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe, talk about the fight continuing in other provinces. Let's bring in Natalie Shalafour, a law professor at the University of Ottawa, to talk a bit more about this. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Scott Moe just listed off other provinces where he says this fight is going to continue. What does this ruling in Saskatchewan mean for the rest of the country? Well, it's the first provincial court to rule on this question. So certainly it's sent an important signal. 
So we still are awaiting a decision in the Ontario Court of Appeal, and Manitoba has also signaled it's, uh, it's, it's going to challenge it as well. So it's the first of several decisions, and so uh, the Premier's right that it's not the end of the story, but it's the first chapter written, and in many respects it sends a very important signal about the validity of this kind of legislation. And what do you make of the fact that the provinces, there are provinces that are challenging this, uh, challenging whether or not the federal government has a right to do this? Well, I think, uh, I think there are some politics at play here because when um, this policy was implemented or when it was the beginnings of it in 2015, 2016, over 80% of uh, Canada was subject to some form of carbon price, whether in the form of a tax like British Columbia, of course, who was the early mover, or in Quebec, like a cap and trade system, something that Ontario had as well at the time. Uh, there was already carbon pricing virtually across the country, and this was an effort to essentially establish it at a national level and make sure that we don't get into situations of what the court called carbon leakage, where some jurisdictions aren't playing their part. So it was already, there was momentum forward and of course the landscape has changed in terms of the politics and it has become unfortunately a partisan issue. Uh, does it come into play or does it factor in at all the um, uh, how, if it works or not in that, is it, is it an argument that's based on, is it constitutional or not for the federal government to do this or does it matter what the results are? Well, it's interesting that you asked that question because the question asked to the court was, is this constitutional? So technically, they're looking at whether the you know, whether Parliament has jurisdiction to do this. But the court did take um, the effect, efficacy of carbon pricing into account. Um, it looked at it and, and noted that there's international consensus about carbon pricing being an effective and necessary part, not the only part, but part of GHG mitigation strategy. So the court actually explicitly, the majority explicitly acknowledged that. And I think that was a pretty important signal as well for, uh, you know, for the country that this is a legitimate way forward. It's internationally accepted. We have examples like British Columbia where it's been in place for some 11 years and it does work. So that was part of the court's consideration. And part of the argument was the fact that it's not evenly applied across the country and that that that, that makes it unfair. Is that something, how did the court handle that argument? Well, that was an argument that was made by Saskatchewan in the context of uh, the backstop, because as, as some of your listeners may know, this legislation only applies in jurisdictions that don't already have a carbon price. So it doesn't apply in British Columbia, for instance, because you have a carbon price. So uh, it only applies in jurisdictions that don't decide to implement either a tax or a trading system. Now, those those uh, provinces, essentially, in this case, uh, Saskatchewan, are saying, well, that's not fair because the federal measure is applying only in, in some jurisdictions. But that's simply because the national standard is essentially, there's an equivalent if there's an already a program provincially, um, provinces are exempt. In other words, the federal government is saying provinces can choose how they want to design these carbon prices. We're establishing a minimum standard just to make sure that everybody plays ball. How likely is it, do you think, that the Supreme Court would hear the issue? As We heard Scott Mother say uh, that he wants to take it to the, the highest court in the country. How likely is that, do you think? Well, actually, all provinces who have a reference of this sort have a right of appeal to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court will need to uh, hear it. Now, if all of the courts of appeal, if Ontario comes down in the same 
spirit of Saskatchewan's Court of Appeal, then there's some possibility the Supreme Court, even though the provinces have the right of appeal, will say, well, we don't need to pronounce reasons here uh, because we already have consistency among the provinces. Or they may simply uh, issue a decision that would essentially clarify because there's still likely to be some slight differences, even if all the courts come down on the same constitutional. Uh, There could be different reasons, different justifications. And so the Supreme Court's role in that case is to clarify some of the differences and basically issue a decision that would have uh, application in all the jurisdictions. Uh, We also heard uh, from Jason Kenney uh, in uh, Alberta uh, responding to this as well, saying uh, he's reviewing the decision, uh, saying, though, uh, that he's still he I mean, he campaigned. We talked about the fact that it is it is a political issue. He campaigned uh, against a carbon tax. Uh, So it sounds like we're going to to, to see more opposition to this. Uh, Is that surprising at all, given uh, what the ruling was? Well, I I think the ruling does have to take the wind out of the sails of some of these arguments because the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal, I mean, there were very, uh, you know, strong arguments from the opposing provinces that this was unconstitutional. And we have a very clear, it's of course a split decision, but still the majority decision was that it is constitutional. And the reality is that even if this goes up to the Supreme Court, and let's say the Supreme Court was to say, well, the way this law is designed is not constitutional. The federal government has ample powers. It could design this as a pure tax. The court, this is legalese, but the court said this is not a tax. It's a regulatory charge, constitutionally speaking. So it's justified under what they call peace order and good government. But the federal government, if it was told by the Supreme Court that that's not constitutional, could simply redesign this as a tax. And it would be less favorable from a provincial perspective, in my opinion, because it would remove flexibility, it would be top down, and the revenues would go into general coffers versus being returned to the provinces. So in a way, um, I think the provinces are, you know, they're not in agreement with this federal policy. It is, I think, a partisan issue because carbon pricing, I think, as uh, economists have been telling us for years, is one of the most cost-effective and environmentally effective ways of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And we've seen it succeed in British Columbia because we've seen emissions go down and British Columbia had, as I understand it, the best GDP growth among provinces during that period. So it does work, it's cost-effective, and now the court has told us it's also constitutional. And so what kind of a timeline do you see playing out here uh, if, uh, if this fight does, in fact, go all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada? It's always difficult to predict. Um, the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal rendered its decision quite quickly. So maybe the Ontario Court of Appeal will do the same thing. Either way, the right of appeal to the Supreme Court is probably are looking at a decision sometime in you know, 2020. So it's very hard to tell. Um, it doesn't move at rocket speed, but uh, it's likely going to be in the next year to year and a half. All right. So we will leave it there. Uh, Natalie, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. We have talked a fair amount on this program about changes when it comes to the powers police officers have when it comes to pulling over drivers. And there is a new case that is shining a light on this once again. It is the case of a 76-year-old BC woman by the name of Norma McLeod who has filed a charter challenge against mandatory alcohol screening. And this is after she was pulled over. She had done nothing wrong. This was an officer that was pulling people over 
over uh, outside or nearby a liquor store and conducting breath tests. Uh, She argued that she was medically unable to provide the breath sample. The officer came to the conclusion that she refused and that she had refused to give the breath sample even though she could. The repercussions of this, she had her license suspended, the vehicle was impounded and the fines were imposed. And keep in mind, there was no evidence that this woman had any or no evidence that she was impaired in any way. So this is one of the big issues when it comes to the powers given to police and one that is now before the courts. Uh, Joining me to talk a bit more about this case and where we go from here is Jerry Steele, uh, managing partner as well as co-counsel on this case, managing partner at Jeremy Carr and Associates. Uh, Jerry Steele, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Good morning, Joe. My pleasure. Uh, so what is at the heart of this charter challenge? Well, it's the uh, it's the changes in the legislation that came in back in December. Um, in my view, I think they were kind of snuck them in under the whole legalization of marijuana. Uh, and that gives the police the right to demand a breath sample from anyone, any driver, anytime, with no ground, grounds whatsoever. And this is a huge overstep from where things used to be with the whole require uh, the reasonable suspicion requirement so it, it's a it's a it's a significant erosion of charter protections that we have in Canada and when it comes to police having the powers to pull people over wh- where is the line as far as uh, uh, you can be pulled over but at what point so is the the difference now that police can demand a breath sample without having any reason to believe that you're impaired that's correct they they have the power now to demand a breath sample from anyone and and in the McLeod case uh, the officer actually wrote in his report that he had in, in he had gone to this location to stake out the liquor store with the intention of pulling anyone over who comes out and demands a breast sample. So in the McLeod case, there was no it, it, it's not even that she there was any evidence that she was impaired. There was no evidence that she'd actually even consumed any alcohol. There was no bad driving. There was nothing. And the 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 standard the way it used to be was ter- was extremely low to begin with. So the police can pull you over for to check sobriety, to check uh, you, to check the um, license registration and mechanical fitness of the of the car. That's that's long standing. Um, that's been per- permissible for a long time in Canada. Uh, it, what this has done is given the police the power to pull anyone over with no reason whatsoever and demand a breath sample. And I mean, it's not too much of a stretch to think who gets targeted uh, when they have that kind of unfettered discretion with no judicial oversight. That's one of the concerns we have are the racial groups. I mean, the, the profiling that goes on, they don't need any reason at all to stop you and demand a sample now. And in this case, I mean, when when the changes were first announced, when they first came about, there was the issue raised of people who physically wouldn't be able to provide a breath sample. And they were kind of dismissed saying, oh, well, that's that's a very, very small group. That's that's it's unlikely to happen. Well, we now have this case of with Norma McLeod. Uh, there was another case as well, uh, in which case the appeal, uh, the adjudicator in that case, and this uh, was reported uh, in, in local papers in Victoria, uh, the adjudicator agreed, yes, she was unable to give a breath sample. Uh, but but 
so how do we how do we deal with the people like these cases that are physically unable? And then it appears in the McLeod case, the officer saying, oh, well, she was faking it. Right. And, you know, and, and that is the $64,000 question. And, and, and so that, that case that you're referring to was the Forsyth case, which was Jen Taran, who was co-counsel on this case with me, that, that, um, that ran that review and was successful in getting her license back. This really highlights a lot of the problems that we have in British Columbia. Uh, and, and a lot of that arises out of this immediate roadside prohibition regime where there issues like this are problematic where somebody can't blow because there's no sort of safety check. Like if, if somebody were to uh, perhaps blow in an ASD and fail in British Columbia, they, you know, they could be taken to the police station and have to blow in the intox if they're being charged criminally. But in British Columbia, they don't have to do that. It's, it's a discretionary decision by the, on the part of the officer whether to impose the administrative penalties that, that, it, that happened in this case where Ms. McLeod was suspended for 90 days. She had her car impounded for a month and she faced a whole bunch of other fines and penalties on top of that. I mean, there are, there are tests they can do the, the problem here really is and, and it highlights the the, uh, the, appeal, the appeal process is that norma mcleod went to an icbc outlet and asked the staff does she need a lawyer to do this review they told her no you do not need a lawyer so she ran her own her own review and lost and uh, and and it, one of the reasons that they gave for not or uh, for upholding the uh, the suspension was that she made no legal arguments and well she had no lawyer right so so the the the, the process of challenging these is problematic as well but I mean, that's a whole other issue that will, I'm sure will come to light in this case. So if somebody is pulled over and under these new laws, uh, police can do that and and demand a breath sample. And if you happen to be somebody like in these cases that physically can't do it, whether in the, the Forsyth case, I think she'd had bronchitis, she'd had severe bronchitis uh, in the McLeod case. Uh, is there anything else you can do? Could you say to the officer, I, I can't physically give you a breath sample, uh, take me into the station or take me somewhere and I'll give a blood sample. Is there anything else you could do? Well, that, uh, th- that is a great question. I mean, this is one of the things that we've complained about for a, a long time now is the answer is no. And, and, we've, and this is not an isolated case. I mean, we've seen many cases like this. We've seen cases where the adjudicators will just disregard the medical evidence. They will say, no, um, you know, we, we're not accepting that, which is exactly what happened. Norma McLeod provided a four-page document on why she couldn't blow. And, and there is no right. Uh, there is no there's no uh, alternate like they, they can't uh, the driver cannot demand uh, a blood to take a blood sample or or your analysis or or anything else they just the police have the power if you they decide which is what happened in this case she made nine attempts in the Forsyth case uh miss Forsyth made 10 attempts the police uh, at that point they they just they close the shop. They say, that's it. Okay, you're done. And, uh, and, and they impose those penalties. So there's no right for a driver to, to challenge that. I've only known of one other case on the mainland where uh, it was a situation like this where the person couldn't blow and they went to the officer later and provided medical information to that officer. And the officer went to, uh, to Road Safety BC and asked that they cancel the IRP. I've only ever known of that ever happening once. Um, the, the police tend to look at these incidents uh, through a, a very narrow lens. You know, their, their, their job is to look for people 
committing crimes or or misbehaving and they you know they they have a, an agenda so to speak and, that, and i think that's exactly what happened here this officer had every intention of just making anybody blow that he came across that came out of that store and so i mean are there people out there is it is it the mo of drunk drivers or people who drink and drive to pretend that they can't blow do you know i mean is it an issue that people are are trying to dupe police by doing that well i'm sure it is in some cases however we have a situation here with with ample medical evidence i mean miss mcleod had had the top part of her roof or the roof of her mouth removed due to cancer she had a prosthetic in her mouth as well as copd so there's ample evidence to say that she had this issue people who have asthma uh, also have problems with the, with those machines I and mean, there's 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 lots of conditions that can lead to this kind of a situation. And, but absolutely, I'm sure there are people that attempt to, um, to, to, you know, to, to disrupt the process or to pretend that they, aren't, they can't blow, and in fact they do. Uh, but, but again, like this, this process, was, we went to a review. Uh, Ms. McLeod provided significant medical evidence, and, and that was just rejected out of hand. So, so what do you think needs to change? And, and that was another thing that came up when these laws came in or changes came in and we were talking about it on this show and somebody saying, oh, well, if, if you find yourself in this situation, uh, there is a remedy. You can hire a lawyer and fight it. Well, that's great that that's a possibility, but not everybody can afford to do that. It's time consuming, nor should you have to really if you've done nothing wrong. Uh, so what do you think needs to change? Well, I think this whole pro- this for, well for starters, let's go back. I mean, there's multiple issues going on here. For starters, the the, the mandatory alcohol screening demand is is unreasonable, and the, the Supreme Court of Canada has already forbidden this type of of search. It is a search uh, on, based on what they call generalized suspicion, meaning there's no suspicion at all that the the driver or the individual is committing any crime that is the way it's been in canada for years and years and years it's uh, that before this came about uh and and that suspicion is very low right so so i mean for starters going back to the reasonable suspicion standard the police need almost nothing to make you blow in uh in a handheld asd in canada and 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 i mean but they do need something Right. So and they can have an odor of alcohol in the breath, or admission from the driver, odor of alcohol in the car, uh, a bad driving. They don't need much. But but this this is a massive departure right now where we've got they, they need no grounds whatsoever. So certainly uh, stopping this ability of the police to just demand a sample from anybody, because everybody that I talk to, I talk to a lot of people about this and nobody seems to think that this is OK, that, that you can just pull people over at random and make them blow in this machine. So that's certainly a starting point. The other problem that we've got is this review process is, and what is, uh, there's, there's many difficulties with this. I mean, it, it, is, it is very unfair. It, quite frankly, in British Columbia, you have a greater right to dispute a, a, a traffic, like a, a failing to stop at a stop sign ticket than you do one of these immediate roadside prohibitions where the penalties are severe and can lead to devastation. I mean, it's the person loses their license on the side of the road uh, and it takes several weeks to, to even to go through the, uh, the, the review process. So th- this is, this is a problematic system that we have at BC. And I think that this, this particular case is really shining a light on some of the, the, the issues that we've got with the whole procedure. Indeed, uh, it is. So we'll talk about this again, I'm sure. Uh, Jerry, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much for your time today. 
Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Well, you've likely heard that home care services for seniors in particular in this province are shifting back to the health authorities. It was an announcement made several weeks ago, and there has been a lot of debate over the issue. And joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Daniel Fontaine, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Daniel, great to have you back on the show. Good. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you've written an uh, opinion piece about this, again, raising your concerns. Uh, what are your main concerns about this? Well, we do have two main concerns. One is, uh, first of all, is going to be the potential disruption to actual senior services themselves. We know that the merging of these workers, and I should clarify, Jill, that uh, it, you've indicated that they're shifting back into the health authority. In fact, uh, these services have been uh, offered, for example, in Vancouver Coastal, have always been offered by uh, nonprofits and the agencies that have been providing them. This is the first time they're actually being moved into the health authorities. So what's happening is these workers are going to be merged into the health authorities. It's going to be about a little over 4,000 of them in, on the Vancouver Island and in the Vancouver Coastal. And as a result of that merger between the six organizations that currently provide the services and the health authorities, we're going to see a lot of what are called bumping rights, the collective agreements. You're going to be having the GEU on tomorrow to talk about this. Maybe they can explain it further for you. But workers who have seniority can actually exercise bumping rights. So you're going to have about 4,000 workers being merged into the health authorities who can all exercise bumping rights and can actually disrupt seniors' home care services in a way that we've never seen before. That is a major concern. Secondly, if you're a taxpayer, if you're listening to this, if you're watching health budgets going through the roof uh, year after year, um, we know that this is going to cost likely about 25% more. So that's going to cost on a, on a budget, on a health care budget for seniors care. That's money that we anticipated when the federal government gave about $787 million for home care in BC for new services. We thought that money was going to go to expand home care, provide longer visits for seniors. And rather what we're seeing is the NDP are taking these funds and they're providing a big win for the BCGU, but they're not providing a win for seniors and, and for the people who are caring for them. And where does that number come from? Or how do you come up with the number that it's going to cost 25% more? Yeah, so it's a little complex. But what's happening right now is that with the community agencies, they're only um, funded by the health authority for the actual services that they provide. That makes sense. That's what you would expect. So typically seniors require services mainly in the morning and then again in the evening. That typically is when they have a higher um, requirement for services. So we know that with this new model, with the employees being merged into the health authorities, they're going to be moving more towards what's called a, just a straight eight-hour shift. So there'll be periods throughout the day where it's non-productive time, where there simply isn't enough work there. And that's why our members and the community agencies that do it now are not paid by the health authority because there wasn't the requirement for the work. The new model that they're being implement, implementing will result in about 25% additional cost, and it'll mean we need more care aids to actually uh, to do the, essentially the same work that we were doing before. So that, uh, as you know, you and I have talked about this before, uh, we don't have any additional care aids. We, this is not an NHL hockey team. I can't go to the farm team and get additional people in. We simply don't have them. So that's the main concern, the, the cost, the, the impact to health human resources, and the fact we don't have care aids. Those are also, that's why we launched the Hands Off My Home Care campaign. We've got radio ads on your station and all across the, the metro area and on Vancouver Island to alert the public, alert seniors and their families. They should phone their MLA. They should be concerned because this transition is now underway. It will be fully implemented by next year, but it could still be stopped if 
if enough people speak out. Uh, and what do you say to, to critics then that uh, say that your argument about this or your pushback to this is because you stand to lose or the, the companies that have been providing this stand to lose all of their business? Well, look, let's, let's be clear. The, the members that I represent have actually been struggling with finances in terms of these contracts for years. In fact, I've been lobbying the federal government to put more money into home care so that that the, the nonprofit societies and the organizations that I represent who've been delivering the service for decades can actually stop losing money on a month-over-month basis. And I was very pleased when the federal government uh, contributed uh, over 10 years and under $700 million. We were assured that those funds would come in. They, that would meet adequate funding for, for the organizations that are providing home care. I could not have imagined in a million years that the funds would have been used to, to turn these workers from nonprofit agencies into government employees, uh, increasing costs by 25% and, in fact, potentially disrupting services. I would have never expected that with the decision from the federal government to increase funding for home care. That, that was quite shocking to me. Uh, we've heard from the health minister saying that the goal is that uh, the people who are at the heart of this, the seniors, said that they won't see any change. Do you think that's possible? No, I simply do not. And I would love for the minister to make public, I'd love for the, the government employees union make public their discussions, their dialogue, because as your listeners probably know, we were kept in the dark. Seniors weren't consulted. The care providers weren't consulted. This was negotiated behind closed doors. We don't have a business case. I don't know any of the financial details around this. They're not putting that out in the public. They're just hoping they can bring this in very quickly and hope the public doesn't notice and, and we move on. But we know this is going to disrupt services. And, and the, I think the minister and, and, and the government have to come clean, put forward a business case, let the public, let the media look at this. That's why we've written to the Auditor General and said to the Auditor General, look, this will be the largest ever single expansion of the public service in the history of British Columbia. We know it's going to cost additional funds, and more importantly, it's going to impact home care services for seniors. Somebody please look at this and alert the public as to what's going to happen before it's too late, because we have less than a year now. The government has served notice, a a one-year notice, that this is going to take place, and there's still time to stop it. But unfortunately, Jill, I I think the government is now uh, moving in a direction that unless someone like Andrew Weaver or the Greens or others step in like they did with the secret ballot, we're going to end up with this uh, real mess in the next 12 months. And just one other thing, and we'll touch on this uh, when we talk uh, about this more tomorrow, but you mentioned the 4,000, the unionized uh, home support mm-hmm. workers and that transition. What about those who aren't in a union? Yeah, so thanks for reminding me about that. There are over 500 non-unionized workers that are going to be laid off as a result of this. People who are schedulers, people who are in human resources, information technology, who support the carriers that have been providing this service for upwards of 30 years uh, in the community, uh, they're just, uh, uh, I guess, just collateral damage on this decision. Um, We have no assurances that these people are going to be able to keep their jobs. They're likely going to be laid off. And that, again, is is another piece when you hear what the the, the minister said, that this should result in no change of services. The seniors advocate said the best that seniors can expect with all this, uh, this merger is that they don't see a change of services. Jill, I have to ask myself, if, if there's going to be no change of services, why exactly is government putting all of this stuff at risk by doing this? I simply don't have an answer other than there are going to be winners and losers in this. And we know that the NDP's donors are going to be winners. We know that the GU are huge fans of this. They're going to be supporting this. But unfortunately, 
when seniors find out what's going to happen to their home care and when their families find out, I think they're going to be incredibly concerned. And I hope that they do phone their MLA. Uh, well, do you think, is it simply, uh, can we simplify it and say it's part of uh, the New Democrats? I mean, they make no, they don't hide the fact that they, they do not like any form of private health care. Is mm-hmm. it the fight mm-hmm. against private health care? Oh, a- absolutely. But there's a bigger, there's a bigger issue uh, here at play. I mean, I'm watching the community social workers who weren't consulted and, and they're complaining and they're con- concerned right now. You've got the forestry workers who are said forest industry is saying they're not consulted. You've got the trial lawyers association who's saying they're not consulted. I mean, the list is going on and on and on of organizations who, unless you're a friend or insider of the government, it would appear that, that the government's not going to listen to you. And they don't want to listen to us because our members are not profit agencies and we're not, and community and, and private agencies. And we're not part of that select group of people that the government will listen to. They will listen to the BC government employees union They will listen to the hospital employees union, but they're not listening to seniors. They're not listening to their care providers. And unfortunately, that pattern seems to be developing and getting uh, increasingly getting worse uh, as each month passes by. All right. We will leave it there. We're out of time. Daniel, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me on.